If you're new here, my name is Tony, and I'm pastor here at LEFC. And it's our weekly privilege that when we come here on Sunday morning to open up a scripture and be able to work through it together so that we might find life from it. And so at this time, I'm going to uh, open to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and we, begin, we continue in our series uh, from 2 Corinthians. And just in case you haven't been around, just letting you know that the context of this letter that's written to the church in Corinth was written by uh, Paul, who was the founding pastor of the church in Corinth. And Corinth and Paul had a unique relationship, if you will, in that uh, for a couple years when Paul was with them, things went well. But when he left to go start other churches, things began to be fractured and, and uh, weren't going so well. And so he had to make special visits to help them get back on the rails, if you will, and, and be going in a healthy direction. He also wrote several letters to help them, again, work towards uh, being a better representation of Christ as a church. Now, if you can imagine when you're regularly under correction from someone, you're not exactly excited to hear from them. Oh, Paul's showing up again this weekend. Oh boy, what are we going to hear this time? Or, or uh, we just received another letter from Paul. You can almost feel uh, the, the anticipation that they know they're about ready to be corrected again. And, and, and so the, the challenging thing is, as we looked last week, is that, that while they certainly were receiving that kind of correction from Paul, they were receiving it. They were actually putting it into practice, and they were applying it, and they were letting it impact their lives, but that didn't change the fact that they were still struggling with the relationship with Paul. In fact, it's like a parent-child relationship where when you have that special child in your home where they need correction regularly, uh, that child, you, you're doing it regularly because you love them and you want to see them succeed, but it becomes tenuous over time because the correction is regular. My, my mother is over here smiling because I was that kid. And, and, and so you, you know that, that as it's going on, you just kind of, as the kid, you get tired of the correction. And so when you know that it's right, even if you know it's right, and even if you know you're going to put it into practice, you do not give your parent satisfaction that they succeeded. That's just part of the unwritten rules as, as, a, as a kid to your parents. And, and one of the, the things that, that really stood out to me as I was looking back, because I could give you a lot of illustrations about where I did not give my parents satisfaction uh, when I was being corrected. And unfortunately, most of the correction happened between my mother and I. My dad was in ministry, serving in a lot of places, so he usually came home to bring the discipline, but the correction had already been made by my mom. And so, and, and this is True, and they can, yeah, amen. So, uh, so that's kind of how things worked in our household. But there was a particular practice that they both did in the car that, that, uh, that wasn't received very well by my sister and I. And that, for whatever reason, the car ride was where we tended to experience our conflict the most. And so what would happen is that usually at some point, we exasperated our parents to the moment where my dad would hit the brakes he would turn around and he'd say, there's a line right here. You are not to cross that line. And we kind of like, oh, we really ticked that off now, right? And, and so my recollection is, is that my sister was always the first to cross that line. But that's just my personal recollection. I might be wrong in my memory. 
But uh, that was how you, things usually happen. But my mom's way of handling things would go deeper. My dad would just be the one to stop it, but my mom would want to go deeper to the heart because, you know, she wants to nurture our hearts. And as a 15-year-old, 14-year-old kid, I did not desire for my mother to nurture my heart. And so what would often happen when my sister and I, who were only 15 months apart, so we were close in age, uh, what, they would, what my mom would do to bring about peace or better and deeper reconciliation is that when she, we saw her taking two chairs and putting them facing each other, we knew what came next. This was going to be the moment that we were sat down in those chairs, forced to look at each other, again, 15 months apart, 14 and 15 years old, forced to look at each other and say five nice things about the other. <laughs> you're, you're getting the jive, right? This, this was not a practice that we looked forward to. In fact, it was always difficult when we're sitting in those chairs to make the initial eye contact towards each other. Like, looking at my sister in the eyes in that moment, it almost made us laugh every time. But, but it was also awkward because we're usually angry at each other at this point. And so we're forced to then say five things. And the first one or two things, usually we're like, I like your hair today. <laughs> or you're wearing a nice shirt. And then that's usually where three, four, and five was influenced even more greatly by my mom. She says, no, something real. And then I would usually say something smart. I do like her hair today, you know. It's just how it went. And then we would get through the final three and be able to get out of the situation. But there was one time I very significantly remember, very clearly remember, when I said one of my five things, and again, it was towards the end, and I saw my sister's demeanor change instantly. Because apparently I said something that meant a lot to her and hit her deeply. I don't remember what I said. I don't remember the context. But I remember very clearly that something happened in that moment with her. That perhaps maybe this brother that regularly lived out neglect towards her. Maybe I saw something, I said something that actually acknowledged something meaningful to her. Or maybe it was directly contrasting to something that she believed I thought about her, and now that actually undid it. I don't know. I just remember it changed something. Now, it was kind of an awkward moment, and, and in those, those moments, it's like, oh, man, if this actually shows that it worked, then we're going to be doing this like every day. <laughs> so it, you kind of have to back off and, and just like play it cool, but I, it was profound. I mean, here it is. I'm 47 years old. I remember this like it was yesterday, that there was a moment that my, my sister's countenance changed. But I ask myself then when I think back, why was I so, I don't know, belligerent and committed to making sure my mom had no satisfaction that this worked? And for that matter, that leads me to the question, why is it that I tended throughout most of my younger years, never gave my parents the satisfaction that the corrections that they gave towards me worked? Why is it that when somebody of authority ever spoke into me or corrected me, why is it that the natural instinct I have is to not give them the satisfaction that they're right? Why is that? 
I mean, think about this, because that's human nature, that there's something inside of us that we don't want to give the pleasure or the satisfaction to somebody who's speaking into your life and correcting you. We do not want them to think that they hit the nail on the head, that they're actually accurate or they're speaking exactly what you need to hear. Why is that? As I contemplated that question this past week, I could only come down to one thought. I do not like to relinquish my standing before others as ever being wrong. In other words, I want to hold on tightly to always being perceived as right. That's just the reality of how I am. I'm being transparent before you. I don't want to give the appearance that I was actually wrong. I want to maintain my platform as being right. Now, there's some of that that lives on even in me to this day, and, and, and God has to do that work, but that's just called pride. That has to be crucified in us, and that is what happens in most of us here. In fact, if we're saying, oh, that, that's not usually my play, my guess is you're not really being honest with yourself, and you might actually be posturing right now of making sure you don't lose your platform of being right. So be careful, because Paul is going to speak to you this morning not me. And the Holy Spirit through Paul is going to speak to you, not me. So take it up with him if you discover by the end of the service that there's conviction and that maybe you've been wrong. Again, when I look at this text and you begin to see that in chapter 5 and 6, Paul acknowledges that his first letter, 1 Corinthians, actually was bearing fruit in them. They were making the changes he had recommended. He, they were responding to the directives that he gave, and they were being obedient. And there was fruit abounding in the church. But some, for some reason, they continued to hold Paul at arm's length. They did not want to receive from him. They, wanted to, they even were listening to others calling into question his apostleship. You do not have authority over us. We don't want to acknowledge that we've been wrong, even though they're practicing and actually putting into action what Paul has been saying. So they have that, that same syndrome of like, I'm not going to acknowledge that you were right. But we're going to put it into practice. Look at what Paul says in verse 2 of chapter 7. He says, appealing to them again. They've already, he's already said, you've withheld, in chapter 6, you've withheld from us your love and affection. So look what he says in verse 2 in chapter 7. He says, make room for us in your hearts. Make room for us in your hearts. Open yourself up. Allow for us to be in relationship. Don't just receive from me these instructions. Allow for relationship to be restored. But look what happens next. In, in the middle of verse 2, he says, We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. All right, so we're, we're getting a little bit of a picture as to what the actual rub is between the church and Paul. We know from 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3 that there was an issue where people were beginning to align themselves with the different teachers. So there were Christian leaders by Apollos, and then there was Christian leaders by, you know, that, that, that followed after Paul, and, and then there were others that were unnamed. And he's saying, you know what? We're not following after our spiritual leaders. We're following after the one who impacts those leaders, and that's Jesus Christ singly. We also know from 1 Corinthians that there were people that were coming in that were intentionally trying to divide the church. 
This is where the relationship with Paul begins to break down between the church in Corinth and him. Apparently, these, these divisive people were going in and saying, Paul is simply wronging you. He's wronging you from his place of authority. He's abusing his authority over you by wronging you, by corrupting your character or exploiting you as being a weaker being. We're hearing this a lot in our social media today where people are crying out, says, I'm tired of being wronged. I'm tired of being corrupted. I'm tired of being exploited by the more powerful. And, and social media is creating energy. Whether it's, whether it's accurate or not, it does not matter. People do not like to be told you are being exploited. That hits at our pride. I am not being exploited. I won't be corrupted. And they're being told by these, these people that are being divisive that Paul's exploiting them and wronging them and corrupting them, thus creating doubt in the relationship. And Paul says, listen, I've not wronged you. I've not corrupted you. I've not exploited you. And then he goes on to explain, I do not even say this to condemn you, to make them feel wrong for thinking and believing such things. But rather, I have said that before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or even die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged by you. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds because of you. For when we came to Macedonia, we had no rest. We were exhausted. We were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside and fears within. But God who comforts the downcast and comfort us by the coming of, of, of Titus and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us then about your longing for me and your deep sorrow and your ardent concern for me so that my joy was greater than ever. Let me stop there. So he speaks to, it's like, okay, you have been told that I've wronged you I've corrupted you, and I've exploited you. But the reality is, I am not even condemning you. My motive is to benefit you and to bless you. And, and, and to prove that, I've spoken very clearly to you. That's, in the NIV, it uses that frankly, very intentionally transparent, blunt, if you will. And, and so he says that that's, that's how I have been speaking as direct, not secretively, as what these false teachers or divisive people are doing. They're bending the ears. What did Paul do? He wrote letters that were read publicly. You're on record. He also then made personal trips to talk to him face to face. But his adversaries, what were they doing? Whispering. Slyly. Who were they? What were they doing? Exploiting. Corrupting. The very things they're accusing Paul of are the very things they're doing. But Paul is being transparent and speaking very boldly. And he says, listen, not only am I not corrupting you, but I have done this because I love you. And he says, I am willing to live with you and I'm willing to die with you. That's the same thing in our modern terminology where we would say, I would take a bullet for you. If somebody was about to kill you, I would stand in the way of that threat. That is what Paul is saying. I, I, I would do all this because of my heart for you, as it says in verses 3 and 4. And then Paul also acknowledges that he hit a place where he himself was discouraged. Now keep in mind, this letter is being written to a church that is exhausted, 
that is feeling threats on every side. Some of them have been killed. Some of them have been arrested. They're under threat because of the gospel. So they're struggling with courage. They're struggling with confidence. He's rebuilding the confidence, but now he's transparent with them and saying, guess what? I've also been discouraged. I've been hurt. I was at a bad place. Look at verse 5 again. For when we came to Macedonia, which, was, which is not too far away, it says, when we had come to Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. You see, what was happening is as Paul was traveling, sharing the gospel, people were going ahead of him. If they heard that he was going to another city, people would go ahead of him to try to create issues and divisiveness prior to Paul's arrival, which just simply exhausted Paul. So Paul is at his weakest point. He is struggling. He has been exhausted by all the defense and all the accusations and even being uh, uh, stoned and, and actually being, and not in the way we would say stoned, by the way. This is a throwing of stones. But, but anyway, he was being threatened on every side. He was even shipwrecked multiple times, and we're going to get into that in a couple weeks. But the point is, is he was exhausted. Exhausted. But yet what changed it for him was when his friend Titus shows up, who had just been with the church in Corinth, which by the way, Titus was a deliverer of one of the letters. So Titus went to Corinth to deliver a letter of correction and, and also encouragement and to help the church make some of those changes. Titus returns, and you can almost say, you know, Paul's exhausted. He's like, oh, Titus, please, please don't tell me the church is rebelling against me. Please don't tell me that they are also not walking with the Lord. Please tell me they're making the change. Please tell me it's good. Titus was encouraged. Titus was strengthened. Why? Because Titus had been encouraged by the church in Corinth. And then Titus said the unthinkable. Said the unthinkable. Look, look what it says at the end of verse 7. He says, he told us then about your longing for me your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Immediate turn. Because Paul had been pouring into this church and, and not receiving any encouragement. And then now, at his lowest point, a messenger comes and tells him, guess what, Paul? They're concerned for you? Ardently concerned. And there's even sorrow for all the things you're facing. They're praying for you. Imagine the about face in his heart. Really? They actually feel that way after all that we've done? Then look at what Paul's response is in verse 8 to this word. He says, even if I've caused you sorrow, to, again, speaking to this church in Corinth, even if I've caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, Again, that's being human. I did regret it because he knows it's being, it's just adding to the list of things he's corrected. Uh, like a parent that's got that special child that they're correcting regularly. It's like, oh, I got to correct this again. So he understands what he's dealing with. He says, but I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy. Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. So Paul finds comfort in the message that they actually cared about him. Which then gives Paul the privilege to say, okay, he's already said, open up your hearts to us, right? 
Open up your hearts. But then he finds out, okay, because they haven't opened their hearts yet, but he finds out that they actually do care. And they actually care about him. So then it gives them the transparent opportunity to be able to say, I did have a hard time sending you that letter. I regretted it, but not ultimately. I sent it because it's what God wanted to do. And I'm so thankful. It gives me hope now that you've received it and God has let it happen that it's godly sorrow that led you forward and therefore made the change and therefore has produced a good fruit. The way I would describe these first verses that we've just read uh, between verses 2 through 9 is through some statements that I would say there would be like quotes of Paul. It's not found in Scripture, but it's basically in line of the Scripture. Look at this, how I would say it. Is that Paul has said to you, Church in Corinth, my friends, I love you so much that I'm being blunt with you. My friends in Corinth, you encourage Titus, who's now encouraged me. My friends, you actually do care about me. The truth spoken in love took some time, but it worked. It took some time, but it worked, which then proves the scripture's true. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. Think about it. After years of struggling with this church, he now is seeing that there's hope for reconciliation between them and that God is definitely working among them. And he says this godly sorrow you're experiencing is healthy and it's gonna bring about the life change that we all need. But here's where the key verse is in this entire text. Right here, verse 10, look what it says. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Let me read that again. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm of what you've done, what longing then to go in a different direction, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you've proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong nor the account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By this, we are all encouraged. Let me stop there. So godly sorrow, which leads to uh, repentance, that ultimately leads to salvation and leaves no regret. So basically what Paul has just done here is created, there are two possible responses to a conflict in a relationship whether that relationship's between you and God or between you and another fellow human being. There are two possible responses when there's been a correction or an error identified. You can choose godly sorrow, which then leads to repentance and ultimately salvation, or you can choose worldly sorrow, which ultimately will destroy you. Let's unpack that a little bit. First of all, this godly sorrow he speaks to. He says that it it leads to repentance. Now repentance, we've defined that back in the fall, but repentance is a change of mind. 
It's a change of mind, like a thorough changing. And as a result of a changed mind, you look at things differently, and therefore you go in a different direction. So it's a change of the inner man that leads to a change of the outer man. And so when you have godly sorrow, when you realize, I have made a mistake, I have erred, it's been pointed out by another, I now grieve that I've made that mistake, I've identified it, and I change my mind. I'm changing the perspective of where I'm at. I no longer see myself as right. I no longer see myself as right. I allow myself to believe I was actually wrong. I was an heir, and it was correctly identified by my brother or sister or by God. And as a result of that change of mind, you begin to go in a new direction. It's a change of mind that says, I'm going to choose a different path. Ultimately, you then quit living under the fa failure because it says that if you have a changed mind and you begin to pursue the better path in re relationship to your relationship with God, it says that ultimately that repentance leads to salvation. Well, you realize I am a sinner. I have erred. I have caused separation between myself and God. And I accept that I am in that error and that he can provide the means by which I'm reconciled. That happens with with the cross, where we understand the cross was the bridge. What Jesus did is my bridge where I can have relationship with God. And so this ultimately leads to then salvation. I then have, am saved because I was eternally damned without that work of the cross. But now because of the work of the cross in me, I am saved. But in regards to a relationship with another person, if we identify we're wrong and we have a true repentance, a changing of mind, realizing my part in creating the error in that relationship, then we can make changes and have that relationship saved and restored. But what, look at what the end result. So if we experience godly sorrow, which then causes us to repent, it leads us to salvation. And then what does it do? It leaves regret behind. It leaves regret behind. Now that's an important understanding that it leaves regret, regret behind. Because if you choose to continue to live under regret, it's not going to produce the change in you. This is where it leads to this statement of worldly sorrow or regret leads to death and causes you to stop living. How does that work out? Think about what worldly sorrow does. When you choose to hold on to your regret, what does that produce in you? It produces in you the constant sense of shame of your mistake. And when you're living in constant shame of your mistake, what does that do to your countenance? It lowers it. And it causes you to always think lesser of yourself than what God sees you as when God may have forgiven you for that. And, and so when you're dealing with worldly sorrow, it constantly rubs the shame of your mistake in your face. Sometimes that rubbing of the shame in your face is self-inflicted. That's what worldly sorrow does. Worldly sorrow also constantly is on the lookout then because you get tired of that shame. You get tired of that guilt. So you constantly on the lookout to blame another person or another cause for the guilt or the shame because you're wanting it to be released. You're tired of it. You're exhausted of it. So you blame you pay forward. Well, you know what? The real reason why I'm feeling the shame and guilt is because I wasn't raised right, or I wasn't guided right, or I was in the wrong situation, or I wasn't protected. It totally ignores some of the decisions that led you to that place. 
worldly sorrow then ultimately becomes like this cancer to your soul. When you hold on to the shame and the guilt of your mistakes, you pour over it over and over and over again, and ultimately it gets you to a place where you are totally defeated and incapable of living. And one of the fruits of that is that it begins to destroy your relationships. Somebody that lives out under shame, under guilt, and is regularly sensitive towards blame, they're not willing to look at some of these mistakes and, and, and accept that for godly sorrow where God can restore and can change the path. They, instead, they choose to hold on to it. I'm going to choose my regret. I'm going to choose my shame. I'm going to choose my guilt. And as a result, they're a bitter person. And their relationships are all broken. There is a significant difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. God's sorrow that he wants us to experience is to get us to a place to acknowledge a wrong so that we can change and go a new direction. Worldly sorrow says you are the mistake and you hold on to it and therefore you cannot move forward. There are two great examples that happen in the exact same night that give the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. So it's to the left in your Bibles if, if, if you don't know where Matthew's at there. It's, a, it's the night that Jesus literally is betrayed by Judas. So it's the night he's arrested. The next day he is taken to the cross. So Matthew chapter 26. We're going to compare two figures, two people Two characters that are there that night and how they both were found to be an heir and how one responded with godly sorrow and the other responded with worldly sorrow. So beginning in chapter uh, 26, verses 31 to 35, it says, Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on my account. Uh, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if, I, if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Now, you could go on and read in verses uh, 69 to 75 to actually read when Peter disowns Jesus three times. The other apostles found it a very important moment to be able to point out Peter's error, so they all recorded it as well. Got to love your brothers in this moment. And it was John who recorded a special moment of restoration. Now, you've got to understand, so... Then this moment happens, Peter responds as Peter does. He's an assertive man. He responds saying, I will go to the death for you. And Jesus, knowing what was going to happen just a few hours later, says, no, you won't. Not tonight, you won't. You're actually going to disown me before the, three times before the rooster crows. What's interesting is that when that actually happened, and, and, and he disowns Jesus three times. And by the way, the initial disownment was before a 14-year-old girl. Where's the vigor, Peter? Where's the backbone, Peter? You let a 14-year-old girl cause you to disown Jesus when you just said you would die for Jesus? But when the rooster crowed, Something very special happened in that moment that often gets lost. It says in the Gospels that literally when that rooster crowed, Jesus looked right at Peter. 
Now, Peter's on record of having done this bombastic moment saying, I will die for you. I'll never disown you three times. It happens. And then Jesus looks right at you. Do you think there was guilt and shame in that moment? Yes, it says he ran away, grieving harshly. It's no surprise to me that uh, three days later, when he hears from the women that had gone to visit the tomb, that the tomb was empty. It was Peter who ran hard ahead to see if it is true. Where was Peter's mind in that moment? He's not wanting to live in the guilt and the shame. It was unbearable to him. He wanted to be reconciled. He was looking to be near Jesus. He wasn't going to live under that. He couldn't bear it. He was going to choose to pursue Jesus. And then we know in the account of John in chapter 21 that Jesus restores Peter by asking him three times, do you love me? Now Peter is clearly going to become a changed man because we know from the book of Acts and we know from the rest of Scripture, Peter becomes one of the two primary key figures to be the primary leaders of the church in the beginning. James, the brother of Christ, and Peter were the primary leaders of the early church. So they clearly forgave Peter. They clearly saw him as a leader. He was clearly restored. And you do not see written anywhere in the rest of Scripture Peter continuing to beat himself up for his mistake. He was no longer living under the shame or the guilt of it. He was moving forward. I will tell you this. He still maintained his personality because after Jesus said, you know what, Peter, you are restored, but you will die for me. You will die for me. So your words are true. You will die for me. And Peter says, well, what about John? So he was still Peter, but he was fully restored. He was fully restored because he was aiming forward. But on the same night when Peter was told, you're going to sow me three times, another apostle sitting at the table was given an ill word about him. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 26 and in verses 20 to 25 where it says this. When the evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as is written about, about him, but woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who had bet was to betray him, said, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, you have said so. Then we know the story again. Later on that night, Actually, Judas runs from the table right after this moment. He goes and he receives his 30 pieces of silver and they come up with the plan of how Judas is going to hand Jesus over to the, the temple guards. And, and so later that night while Jesus is in the garden, the soldiers show up. Judas then says, you'll know which one is Jesus by the one I kiss. He comes up and greets Jesus with saying, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kisses him. And Jesus is arrested. We know that this was torturous to, to Judas in that moment because the reality of what he just did came to him. Look at chapter 27, verse 1 and following. 
This is so significant because you're going to see very much the difference between Peter making his mistake and what happened next and Judas making his mistake and what happened next. So early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. Then Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and he hanged himself. He stopped living. He died. You see, Judas made a decision. My sorrow is going to be worldly sorrow. It is my shame, my guilt. And he was going to choose to live with it. And he knew he couldn't live beyond the moment. So he committed suicide. It's interesting. Was there any really greater grievance between the two? What did they both do? They robbed Jesus of the relationship with them. They both failed relationally. There's not really one higher than another. They both failed significantly. When Jesus needed an an advocate with him, Peter was right there near Jesus and never advocated for Jesus. Instead, he denied him in Jesus' presence three times. Judas betrays him privately. Is there really any difference? There is in how they respond. Judas made the mistake of holding on to guilt and shame. Therefore, stopped living, and it destroyed him. But Peter realized, I can't live with this, and I want to live, and the only way I can live is going and making right. Going and making right, and acknowledging his error, and having a change of mind, and choosing to live under the forgiveness that he received, rather than live under regret, shame, and guilt. Which leads me to four things I take away from this passage. The first two being questions. How much do I really love someone if I'm willing to withhold advice that would help them and benefit them? How much do I really love someone if I cannot be bold enough to speak something that would spare someone so much heartache and pain? Paul was willing, and he regularly had to struggle with, I've got to send this letter, but I know it's going to continue to add to the list of corrections I've given. Can they sustain it? And you know what? When you're a parent correcting that child that's always needing correction, you're always going to go through that pattern of, do I correct them again? Or do I, for the sake of keeping peace, withhold it from them? A good parent will keep coming back to the place of love and offering the life-saving advice. So should we, in our relationships, not withhold when we know it could be life-saving or life-enhancing life that could benefit them and restore them relationally. Which leads to the second question, are we willing to deal with the potential of rejection when we offer truth? And do we offer truth in, in the way that uh, Paul has offered it, where there's grace? He's regularly putting himself out there vulnerably, putting himself out there saying, I'm giving you my heart. I'm commending you. I'm complimenting you. He compliments this church regularly throughout this book, but yet nothing in return until now. But it took years to get to this place. Are we willing then to suffer rejection? Are we willing to offer truth even if it becomes difficult? 
So that's from the offering side. But how about on the receiving side? When you're corrected, are you choosing a path of holy regret where the regret is in that moment and you then seek repentance and you allow the relationship to be restored? Or are you going to choose a worldly sorrow that chooses self-pity, shame, guilt, or even blames others, ultimately paying forward your pain and your brokenness? So when corrected, we choose the path of either holy regret and repentance, which enables you to live, or you're choosing a path of worldly sorrow that will destroy you. So the, the obvious takeaway is choose well godly sorrow and reject worldly sorrow that will eat you alive from the inside out. Let's pray. Father, I, <laughs> there's many times I can say that, that I've been blessed when godly sorrow was chosen and, and I sought immediate repentance. It, it, healing came much quicker. Restoration of relationships came much quicker. My relationship with you was improved almost instantaneously. But there's also times I can look back in my life where I chose my self-pity. And I chose my shame and I chose my guilt to live under it. And it was destroying me. And it was destroying my relationships. God, I don't know the story of what's going on here in this room with different people. But we're all in relationship. And as a result, there are relationships that we know that are broken. And in many cases, we have probably erred. And we've not chosen to acknowledge our error. There are many here that may be not in relationship with you right now. Because they've chosen their shame, they've chosen their guilt, they've chosen their heir to hold on to as their identity rather than releasing it, letting their mind be changed, receiving your forgiveness so that they can be saved and have a restored relationship with you. Where regret is in the rearview mirror, not what's before us. So God, I pray that you'll do a work in this time. Speak to our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, that... There's a power that is greater than any of us that is found with the work that you did on the cross. <laughs> that forgiveness can be found complete, so full, no limitation type of forgiveness that regardless of our greatest regret or greatest mistake, we can lay it at the foot of the cross and find forgiveness and ultimately be restored back to you and find salvation. And be able to live with no regret. That is the story by which we celebrate this morning. And God, now help us then to live that out in our relationships. It is not easy because sometimes our relationships are very, very broken. And so God, we're going to need help. We're going to need help in that restoration there. So Lord, guide us in that. Help us to be bold in speaking truth, but with a spirit of grace and love. But also, Lord, being willing to be corrected and do so, and be willing to be wrong. Lord, may we receive that as well. Jesus, it's in your name I pray this. Amen. My final word to you here this morning is, don't be stubborn. Don't be stubborn and hold on to your platform as being right. Be willing to stand before God and before your friendships and acknowledge that you could be wrong. And let God use that to proclaim 
his forgiveness through you. Amen.